0: all right, my friends, if you got a Bible, you can go ahead and find Hosea chapter five and six. We're walking through one of the minor prophets, one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Hosea. And today we get to dig into two chapters that really carried the DNA of the entire word of God. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. The, the last month or so, my wife, Nancy, who, uh, who's been my girl for decades. We've actually, we're we're coming up on our 20th anniversary, which is crazy. Got married young and, uh, been, been dating Nancy since I was in seventh grade. My girl, Nancy is actually going back to school and she's going back to school. And a couple of the classes that she's taking right now are, uh, microbiology and anatomy and physiology. Cause like go big or go home. Right. And, Throughout the course of this class, she's been studying microbiology and anatomy physiology. We've just been having really unsexy conversations on dates. She's having me quiz her about things that I don't even know if they're real. Um, I've got a list of note cards containing things like Golgi bodies and mitochondria and different systems of the body. And she started taking to, uh, to touching me like I'm an anatomy physiology dummy. And what I mean by that is like, I'll think that she's rubbing my neck, and then I'll realize that she's just feeling for vertebrae and naming them. So things have gotten really weird at the curry house. And, and yet, in the midst of that, what's been really fascinating is just the, the slight cursory knowledge I have of what she's studying and getting to look over some of her notes is just the beauty of studying the parts and the whole at the same time. That's what she's doing. She's having to go deep on a cellular level and she's learning all these beautiful things that God designed to sustain life that are tiny and small but have unbelievably specific jobs and responsibilities in the life of your body and how they connect to larger systems of how we function and work. And what's fascinating about that to me and what this has to do with Hosea is that when you think about the Bible, when you study scripture, And you zoom into one text and you dive into one text, like we're going to do tonight with Hosea 5 and 6. As we study that one text, it's full of people and choices and crises. There's prophets and there's love and there's loss and there's grace and there's judgment. And then as you zoom out from that one text, what you see is that all those players, all those people, that cultural moment, that historic moment in which God's working and in which people are running from God or returning to God by his grace, that moment is a part of the broader story of God. What happens in scripture is if you lose the ability to zoom in, if you don't zoom in and go deeply, you'll forget the fact that God wants to speak to you, not just in this weird, abstract, theoretical way, but he wants to speak to you in the details of your life as well. God wants to work in your particular history. When you study scripture and you see that these moments and these different times of loss and pain and these times that were really great and times that were really terrible, that God was actually there and he was working and he was orchestrating individual stories to be a part of the bigger story. It breathes hope into your life. And we wanna be able to connect that to the broader story because if you don't zoom out, you'll start to think that the Bible is just God's greatest hits collection full of one-off stories that are disconnected. And at worst, you'll be tempted to take those stories as just mere human examples of moral lessons that you can achieve on your own. So we need the individual stories in scripture. We need the parts, but we also need the whole. The parts without the whole lose their purpose. They lose their meaning and the whole without the parts will start to miss out on the complexity of just what God's doing, that all of the story of Israel is the story of God's grace. And actually the story of Israel, their entire history is not just about Israel. It's about the coming of a king that would be the king of every nation, every tribe, the one that came to bring redemption. So today we're going to dive into these two chapters in Hosea 5 and 6. And here's what I hope you see. Here's what I'm praying for. I hope you see that in these two chapters, in this historical moment in Israel, where there's lots of prosperity, but there's a lot of wandering away from God. There's a lot of spiritual infidelity. What I hope you see is that what God does in Hosea 5 and 6 contains the gospel DNA that's the thread throughout the entire Bible that these two chapters are about the good news of God's grace in Jesus. They're pointing us to that grace. They're reminding us of that grace in their historical context, like 800 BC, They're preparing people for the coming of a rescuer, of a savior, of a redeemer. And in our particular historical context, 2018, they're reminding us that the story of God is about his grace and his mercy that's actually a better story than the story of him just giving us what we deserve. So here we go. We're gonna dive in. I wanna show you two really tragic limitations, and then I wanna show you something that's limitless. Number one, I want you to look at chapter 5, verse 6, and I want you to see the limitations of human nature. There's two that we're going to study in this text. The first limitation of our nature is that we can play religious games, we can play religious games, but we can't on our own offer God true worship. We can play religious games, we can build religious rituals, we can go through the motions of aspiring and ascribing to God value, glory, and worth. But what we can't do is create in our hearts true love for God and true devotion. Here's what happens in verse six. With their flocks and their herds, they go to seek the Lord. What's that talking about? Well, it's talking about sacrifices. God set up sacrifices in the law of Moses that would be a reminder that sin has to be atoned for. And they would bring these animals and they would sacrifice to God in particular days of the calendar year. And they would slaughter those animals to remind them that death is the result of sin and that God in his grace provided a way for their sins to be covered, for them to be washed of their iniquity. But that's not the whole story. They come with their flocks and their herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They've dealt faithlessly with the Lord and they've born alien children. And now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Here's what it's saying. The children of Israel in this cultural moment are trying to reconcile some irreconcilable realities. They're trying to pull together the worship of gods that aren't God, like Baal, And the worship of Yahweh who rescued them from Egypt, they're trying to integrate and marry things that should never be connected. And what you have in the life of Israel is all kinds of external religious piety. They're still praying their prayers and they're still reciting the story of God's rescue from Egypt. They're still slaughtering their animals. They're still keeping their festivals and their feasts, but God is furious with them because though they have religious forms and structures, there's no real devotion, love and life inside of those forms and structures. So they're slaughtering a lot of animals, but they're not really turning back to God and they're praying prayers, but their hearts are a million miles away from God and they're reciting scripture, but They're reciting scripture with lips that actually long to kiss the face of false gods that lead them away from devotion to Yahweh. So they're really good at religion, but they really don't know how to actually do what God wants from them, which is found in Hosea 6.6. Here's what God says. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Uh, This is probably a really important verse to camp out on in the Midwest where we have so many different religious structures. We have so many people that have been taught that religion is what God is after, that if you go through the motions of faith or attend church, or if your mom was a Methodist or a Baptist or a Pentecostal or a fill-in-the-blank, then just by the very nature of heredity, you're right with God. And what God says here is, I'm actually not looking for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings. What I'm looking for is a heart that loves me in devotion and a life that fears me and a head that knows me as I really am. So the children of Israel, that the first limitation you see here is that on their own, they can walk through the motions of religion. They can pray and they can sing and they can shout, but what they can't do is fill up that religious framework with true devotion and delight that God himself deserves. secondly, their other human limitation is that they can offer fickle love, but they can't offer steadfast love. Look at verse four. God says to him, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? This is northern tribes, southern tribe, Ephraim and Judah. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Um, I, I was raised in Southern California, California was born in Anaheim, lived in San Diego, moved to Orange County. And throughout the year in Southern California, especially over the summer months, um, there's this thing known as June gloom. And sometimes uh, what would happen is mist and, mist and uh, fog would roll in off the ocean and it would press inland and you would wake up in the morning and you'd walk outside and be like, man, this is going to be a terrible beach day right? This is a foggy day. It's a gloomy day, but almost without fail throughout the year, what happens in Southern California is that by 12 o'clock, by one o'clock, by two o'clock, the sun has melted the clouds. The mist is pushed back. And what you have is a beautiful sunny day because people in Southern California are not hardy like we are in the Midwest. They're soft and they need it to be 80 degrees all the time. And what god's saying to the children of israel here is hey your your love is like that mist your love's like a cloud it looks like it's got substance it looks like it's going to last but as soon as the sun rises it just melts away it just disappears and i just hate i hate how much i hate how much my life resembles this text I hate how much I can have moments of deep devotion to God and I can sing these songs and mean them and I can read my Bible and be moved by God's grace and I can really, in a moment, truly hate sin and really want God and I can recommit and be like, Lord, I'm all yours. Whatever you want to do with me is what I want. You're better than anything else in the world. And then somewhere around Monday at two o'clock, the weight of the world presses in and I'm looking for something shiny to distract me from God. What God says to Israel is you guys are so fickle. Your love is so unfaithful. You can offer me like a little bit of lip service and it seems like there's a little passion and devotion in it. It's like, you're almost convincing me for a minute that you mean what you're saying, but then time reveals that your heart's not actually in it and you don't want me, you don't love me, you don't know me. You're good at being religious and you're good at being fickle. but steadfast love is a million miles away from you. And here's the problem. God paints a really clear picture of their problem, which is also our problem. It's a eighth century BC problem. It's a modern 21st century problem. It's a problem that's a human problem. Hosea five, verse four, here's the problem. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God for the spirit of whoredom is within them and they know not the Lord. Here's what he's saying. The problem's twofold, right? Their deeds don't permit them to return. In this, here's what he's saying. They, they make choices that build up the power of formation over time, right? Um, we all get habituated to our choices, don't we? And what God's saying to them is, man, you, you have all this momentum with your deeds as you turn to the Baals and as you walk away from Yahweh, as you think that your security's found in your political structures, as you worship the gods of money and sex and power, which are all at work in the worship of Baal. What God's saying is your deeds won't let you return. Your deeds are like a treadmill. Your deeds have a momentum. You're habituating yourself to a life of spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness but the real problem and the deeper problem is not just the deeds. It's not just that they're using human agency to turn away from God. The real problem, the problem under the problem is what God calls a spirit of whoredom, spirit of whoredom. Now, if you're from a really charismatic church, you might think that that's like a demon or a ghost and demons are real. There are such a thing as demons, but this is not about demons or ghosts. When God says you have a spirit of whoredom, he's talking about the default mode of their heart, the very essence of their soul. What he's saying is the compass of your heart, it might shift momentarily to point in a different direction, but left to its own, it always sends the needle back squarely in the direction of spiritual adultery where you love all the stuff I've created to the exclusion of the God that created them. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter one, that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've worshiped the creation instead of the creator. So what God's saying is, hey, people, um, human limitations are really difficult to deal with because one, you're good at playing religious games with God and you're good at offering fickle love, but you can't really walk in faithfulness to God, which is, by the way, according to the counsel of scripture, the very purpose for which we were created. You can't walk in your purpose. You can't walk out what it means to be fully human and fully alive because your deeds won't let you come back. And underneath your deeds is this default constant bend to run from God into iniquity, into infidelity. And so can we just stop for a second and just take inventory and be honest? We are good at religion. We're good at religion. And, and structures themselves are not bad. Like we believe in liturgy and we believe in actually institutional, the institutional side of the church. Like there is an institutional side of the church that's beautiful, that helps create a framework or a house for life, right? It's good to have prayers of the people. It's good to celebrate the table of the Lord. It's good to gather on Sundays. Like we, we want to have these forms, but here's what God says to Israel, the forms without the life of the spirit, the forms without a heart that feels God's beauty in it. The forms without a heart that knows that sin is, is really leading to death and that God's grace leads to life. The forms without that, without the substance, it's like, it's like dead dry bones that's really ugly and gross. And I just want to say, man, it's, it's totally possible in our context like I have so many friends. I'm like, hey man, are you a Christian? And the answer nine times out of 10 in our state is, yeah, man, I'm a Christian. And then you dig in and you're like, what do you mean by that? Well, my mom was Methodist or my dad was Baptist or I go to church or I give to the poor. Or I volunteer at city rescue mission. And I would just say, all those things can be great. There's nothing wrong with those things, but God doesn't find, define relationship with him based on the external forms God defines relationship with him based on faith that's demonstrated by repentance and devotion and affection. And I'd be a really bad friend to you if I didn't say it's possible to go to church your entire life and not know anything intimately about the God that we're singing these songs to. And that's sobering, right? it's totally possible. It's totally possible to be able to write a really theologically astute definition of grace on a piece of paper and, and grace just be an abstract concept and not a relational experience of the love of God. That's for you in Jesus. And this leads us to a second limitation. There's limitations of human nature, but then, and this is going to sound a little heretical. So bear with me here. Um, there's actually, there's actually a limitation on divine judgment as well. There's a limitation to divine judgment. Look at Hosea 5, verse 12. God's talking and here's what he says. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and he sent to the great king, but he's not able to cure you or heal your wounds. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue. So listen, God is, um, God is not one dimensional, right? God's not one dimensional. God is complex in his perfection and in his holiness, And God is not like a a senile husband who is gonna continually wink at and turn a blind eye to the repeated infidelity of his bride. So what God does with Israel in this text is he actually resists their turning. He resists their evil. He actually brings judgment against them. and, And the way he describes this judgment is by using some pictures or some metaphors of the way that he relates to them. God says, I'm like a moth to you. What does a moth do? Well, a moth in the dark silence of your closet, just eats the stuff that you own. A moth devours. I'm like a dry rot to you that actually the house looks really pretty and it's painted and it seems like everything's great, but I'm actually, I'm actually removing your very house from underneath you with dry rot. And then he uses the most shocking one, right? He says, I'm like, a, I'm like a lion, like a young lion. And that doesn't mean a lot to us because there's not lions kicking it in Edmund and OKC. Like you don't have to look over your shoulder when you're getting your car. Um, but eighth century BC, you didn't want to meet a lion on the road. And what God says is I'm like a lion. I'm like, I'm tearing you and I'm wounding you. And there's all these great Bible studies you can do about different names of God and ways that God expresses himself to his people that he's our provider, he's our healer. That's all true and wonderful and beautiful. But there's not a lot of Bible studies on these names of God. (laughs) That God would refer to himself as being like a moth, like dry rot, like a lion that's lying in wait to tear them. And here's God's hope in the midst of all that judgment, right? The hope is that they would come to sobriety, that they would wake up and realize, oh man, we've, we've run into the arms of all these lovers that can't satisfy. We've walked away from God who does satisfy. He wants us back and he is resisting our infidelity because he cares, so let's return to him. But instead of returning to God, God brings resistance and where do they go? They turn to Assyria. In the ancient world, it was often believed that kings had magic powers to heal different diseases and afflictions. And God is using this picture that it's like, I'm tearing you and you're going to these pagan kingdoms thinking that there's magical remedies in the houses of these pagan kings. I just want to stop here before we go any further. Just say, man, like that's again, not just Israel. We run after all these different loves and God in his mercy and grace, he restrains evil in us and around us with his judgment. He makes it difficult to get those lovers that we think are gonna satisfy. He resists us in our wayward ways. Just take career, for example. You chase the God of career and you think that climbing the ladder of success is gonna heal you and save you and make the ache of your soul go away. And God resists that, right? Sometimes he resists it like a moth, he erodes it. Sometimes he resists it like dry rot, he takes it away. Sometimes he resists it like a lion. The worst kind of resistance is when he just goes hands off and says, all right, just chase after it and you're on your own. That's the most terrifying. And in the midst of that, what's crazy about us is that like Israel, we get really miserable chasing after these gods that aren't gods. But instead of coming to our senses and returning to God, we're like, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go to Assyria and be healed there. And we self-medicate, we switch gods, we go from career to family or career to sex or career to pleasure. Now, some of you are wondering like, but why would you say that there's a limitation to divine judgment? Because isn't God's judgment just and God's judgment good? And yeah, it's just and it's good and it's right. But the limitation of God's judgment is found in the end game that God's pursuing with his people. What does God want from his people? And what God wants for his people is found in Hosea 6.6. 6. God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And I would just say, it's important to remember that this is the book of Hosea we're studying. And the book of Hosea leaves behind Hosea and Gomer But it doesn't leave behind the central metaphor of God being a husband pursuing his wife. Though Hosea and Gomer fade from this story after chapter three, the whole story is controlled by the overarching narrative, by the overarching metaphor that God is like a husband that wants the heart and the soul and the body of his bride. He wants her faithfulness. He wants to know her. He delights in her and he wants her to delight in him. He wants that kind of covenantal, faithful relationship marked by steadfast love and the knowledge of God. And and the problem with that and judgment is that judgment can restrain evil. Judgment can and does give people what they deserve. And by the way, only sheltered Westerners, only sheltered Westerners that have experienced very little suffering, want a God that doesn't judge anything. Because if you grow up in a culture that's experiencing genocide if you grow up in a culture where rape is rampant if you grow up in a culture where there's all kinds of injustices that take your breath away and you see family members getting hacked to death by machetes then the only way you could possibly not take matters in your own hands is to believe that hey if there's a god he's going to oppose ultimately this kind of evil but here's the problem god doesn't just want to kill us cuz our hearts are dead And he doesn't just want to shout at us because our ears are deaf to his voice. He doesn't just want to give us what we deserve. He wants something different. He wants steadfast love. And the limitation of divine judgment is that divine judgment can bring justice, but it can't bring affection. It can't bring delight. It can't bring intimacy. This leads us something that's limitless. There's the limitation of human nature and there's the limit of divine judgment. But in this text, there's also, there's whispers of limitless grace, limitless grace. Hosea gives us a clue about the happy ending that God's trying to write into history in verse 11 of chapter six. He says, for you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed A harvest is appointed. This is an agrarian culture. That's a big picture. That's a big metaphor. That's like, hey, a celebration's coming. It's going to be amazing. There's going to be enough to eat and drink. The famine's going to end. The drought's going to be over with. The spiritual desolation's going to stop. And I'm going to restore the fortunes of my people. And the question I hope you ask when you read a text like this is, is there any clue as to how this happy ending is possible? How does this happen? How is God going to work to restore fortunes to people who have deeds that are habituating them to run and a spirit of whoredom? How is God going to do this great miracle? When, and there's a partial answer that's found in chapter six, verses one and two. We're going to end with this because it's so beautiful. And in, in chapter six, one and two, this prophet Hosea is going to identify with the children of Israel in their sin, right? He's going to count himself as one of them, though he's a prophet that's sort of proclaiming the need for repentance and turning to God. He is in this moment going to stand, not against them or apart from them. He's going to stand with them. Are you tracking with that? He's going to identify with the children of Israel. And in that identification, he's going to call them to something. And he's going to point to something. Look at these two verses. Come, let us, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Now here's what you gotta see. All of the prophets, all of the prophets through the inspiration of the spirit in ways that they didn't even in the moment fully understand. All of the prophets, including Hosea are pointing beyond themselves to a fulfillment, to a yes, to an answer that was coming in the Messiah, Jesus Christ the restoration, the rains that are gonna come and, and remove the droughts, the transformation from a heart of whoredom to a heart of steadfast love. All of that is leading to the coming of Jesus. And here's what you gotta see. Hosea in this moment of identifying with the people of Israel and saying that the tearing is gonna turn into healing and the 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 bruising is going to turn into restoration and the bearing is going to turn into resurrection. Hosea in identifying with him and saying these things is pointing beyond himself to a greater prophet who's going to identify with God's people and their sin way more intimately than Hosea would. See, Jesus was talking to Bible teachers of his day And he rebukes him. He says, you guys search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but they, scripture, testify about me, Jesus. And you refuse to come to me that you might live. So think about this. In the Jesus event, God's in breaking into history, Jesus living and teaching, being the only sinless human being that's ever lived. Jesus going to a cross that he didn't deserve and having our sin put on him, our spirit of whoredom counted as him, our breaking of all of God's laws placed on him. Jesus in doing that identifies with the sins of God's people way more intimately than Hosea. And he does it in a way that doesn't just lead us to trying to reform our own hearts He does it in a way that releases power from the very presence of the living God to do something that goes beyond the limitations of human nature and divine judgment. In fact, because of the cross and resurrection, we could look at this text again, 6, 1, and 2, and we could think about it a little differently. Post-Jesus, we could say, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he, the Father has torn him, the son, that he may heal us. By his stripes, we are healed. He, the father, has struck him, the son, down, that he may bind us up. He that knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. After two days, he will revive him. On the third day, he will raise him, that we may live before him. Amen. You and me are so, I'm editing myself. I was about to use stronger language than I can use. We are so insane. If we think that we can overcome the limits of our humanity, of our sin nature, through religious ritual and trying harder and moral effort. We're so crazy if we think that we can offer to God on our own steadfast love, something other than fickle, misty, burning off when it gets hot love. And we're so crazy. We're so crazy if we think that we can kind of matrix, back bend dodge the justice of God just based on sort of playing the comparison game where we think, well, certainly God wouldn't judge me. I'm not as bad as Hitler. And what God does in Jesus is so different. It's so much bigger than that. Christ identifies with you so intimately, so closely. He identifies with you in such a real intangible way that your sin becomes his sin. That his righteousness could become your righteousness. That the very face of God could shine towards you and not be a frown. is a great way to close this. This is a call that points us to a response in light of the gospel. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. As we wrap this up today, I would just say a couple of things. Repentance is really essential to following Jesus. It's really important. It's a really big part of being formed by God's love. And some people think that repentance is just turning from sin, from spiritual adultery, and that's it. And, and that's, really, um, that's really an anemic, unhelpful way to think of repentance. In Cormac McCarthy, McCarthy's amazing book, The Road, I love Cormac McCarthy. The dude who is, an incredible, is an incredible writer. In his book, The Road, This dad and this son, they set out on a journey in this kind of dystopian, post-apocalyptic world. And their hope for that journey is that they're actually going to the coast, believing that there's a better life, there. there's something better there than what they're currently experiencing. Now, they wouldn't have left what they were currently experiencing if they had no hope that that there was something better at the coast. Are, Are you tracking with me? Repentance is a lot like that. Repentance is not just, hey, you know what? I love money more than I love God. I'm gonna stop loving money. I love sex more than I love God. I'm just gonna stop loving sex. I love self-medication more than I love God because I feel the pain and the messiness of my soul and life's too big and scary. So I'm just gonna drink too much or medicate myself with illicit drugs and I'm just gonna stop doing that. That's insufficient. That's like, that's actually a formula to becoming a Pharisee. Real repentance is so much better than that. Repentance in the Bible is not just a turning from, it's always also a turning towards. It's turning from these false lovers to a better lover. It's turning from these gods that are not even God and can't rescue to the God that loves you and that gave his son for you. It's turning from lesser delights to a greater delight. It's turning from sin to the face of God. And here's what you got to know. The face of God is not grumpy, dark, and cloudy towards you. If your faith is in Jesus, his his face is beaming with delight and with love towards you. If you're religious today, my prayer for you is that you would come to the sober realization That ritual doesn't equal steadfast love. That moral excellence in comparison to other people doesn't equal steadfast love. You need Jesus. Some of us need to turn from religion to Jesus. Some of us are irreligious. We got banged up in church, we got hurt, we reacted. We said, I'm not going to be a part. I'm not going to follow Jesus. Some of us actually had a sense of relationship with Christ and life's happened and sins happened and we've walked away from him. And now it's like, my deeds won't let me return. And the spirit of whoredom just drives me to all these other lovers. What am I to do? Turn from and to Jesus. And for every person that's a Christian here and honest, what do you do with love that's so darn fickle? Like, what, what do I do with love that's so fickle? Because right now, I feel like weeping because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves me and he loves you. In this moment, I know it. What am I going to do tomorrow when I'm really stressed out about my week and worried about my kids, though? And this feeling's not here. How do we grow from being fickle to being steadfast? Well, oh, listen, it's it's found all over this text. It's in that turning from lesser loves to the face of him, to receiving his love and his delight for us in Jesus, that his love starts to form us, and it's really a slow formation if we could be honest. He forms us slowly over time to love him more than we love everything else in this world, to want him more than we want the stuff that he made and to actually desire a life of obedience and communion with God that's yours in Jesus.